to read two passages of Scripture this morning. First is from Hebrews chapter 1. The words will be up here and uh, encourage you to find it and uh, follow along. Is that interesting? Anyone get a new Bible for Christmas? I will, we'll get to Philippians, Hebrews. Anyone got a new Bible for Christmas? No, Bibles are out for Christmas presents, it seems. Anyone get a new kind of electronic device that you could put a new Bible on? Ah, oh, gosh. Um, never mind. No one... You got a jumper. <laughs> what on? Okay. <laughs> anyway, right. So let's uh, encourage you to. Fi- I do. I do. I encourage you to find Hebrews. Are we there? Yeah, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. I like that. It's like an afterthought. And through whom? And, you know. Anyway, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And also in Philippians chapter 2, from verse 1 to 11. Therefore, if any of you have encouragement have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those words in Philippians, uh, the, the who being in very nature, uh, are reputed to be one of the very early hymns, uh, the very early songs of praise, maybe a liturgy of the early church, recognizing and focusing on Jesus. Uh, did anyone play at Christmas? Um, if you've got younger ones, maybe you got an app or a, a, an old-fashioned paper thing. Uh, that game you used to play, Spot the Difference? Anyone play that? few of them. I'm really in touch with this year, aren't I? And, no, I've not done that. <laughs> I remember playing Spot the Difference. 
And uh, I remember being younger and uh, in those Spot the Difference games when uh, young people are involved. They're really obvious, aren't they? You have one picture and then it's really obvious, almost, you know, farcical. But then as I uh, progressed in my skills as a different spotter, uh, they, you get those kind of really hard ones. Do you know the ones you mean? You, know, you scour and pour over them from ages and there's, a, there's just a tiny, like the pupil of one eye of a hundred characters is like different and uh, you spend ages spotting the difference. Uh, as I've done my, uh, my piano exams, one of the things you have to do in the, the listening tests is uh, after you've played your pieces and stumbled over the scales, they then s- swap places and you have to stand and listen to the uh, examiner and you have to sing a bit, and you have to uh, you know, do something. But there's one little bit where, in grade one, it was really easy. They play about four notes, and as one, they say, we'd now like you to spot the difference. And they play this, the, say, this, essentially the same thing, but with one note difference. It's kind of easy when it's really, really discordant. You go, ah, oh, there it is, and they ask you what was different about it. By the time you get to the later grades, it's a little bit more tricky. It seems like the piece goes on for about an hour as you're standing there, and, and the difference is really, really tiny, and you've kind of forgotten the first piece by the time they've got to the, you know, the beginning, and you're kind of thinking, what was it? What was the difference? Maybe I wasn't so good at that one. Why do I go on about that? I was struck by a comment my mum made as we drove to friends for, uh, for Christmas dinner. We were journeying down the M32 into Bristol, and she was reminiscing, as, as my mum has wont to do, and she said, do you know, I applied to a college in Bristol for kind of teacher training. She was a teacher. And uh, I said, oh, what? And she, she told me a little bit about it. She didn't get in, she said. And then she said this statement. She said, wouldn't it have been different if I'd have gone there, not Sheffield?" I probably wouldn't have stayed going out with your dad. And it began to remind me of a kind of like a Doctor Who episode where time is rewritten and things kind of are very different. And it becomes, you know, how would it have changed? What is the difference? And it just kind of sparked something in this Christmas week. And I wanted to focus a little bit on this, not as a negative, but as a really positive thing. There's, there's going to be a PowerPoint coming up. Thank you. Um, Gosh, you can't really read that, can you? Sorry about that. It says, what if Christmas never was? And the subtext says, um, how, let's go back one. Uh, How would it have been different? How would it have been different? You know, we live in an age, kind of an age, where people sort of are beginning to forget about Jesus. But actually, he is so much part of who we are. If you were to play spot the difference, the gap would be immense. It's not just like a fine, tiny recorrection of the picture that we would now have. Actually, everything would change if it had been different, if God hadn't come amongst us, if it hadn't been for Jesus being born as a a tiny baby and living his life and showing us what God is like and dying for us on the cross, our world would be unrecognizable. Yeah. That we have every confidence, everything to celebrate and everything to be based upon on the good news of Jesus and all that that means to dwell upon it, to reflect upon it, to learn about it because Jesus still is in the, in the, uh, in the, 
in the whole business of transformation. He's not finished. That over 20 centuries, the power of God, the impact of Jesus has echoed and echoed and impacted and changed and transformed for good. And that's what we're looking for and working towards in 2015, isn't it? Um, so here's, here's a, a quote. I'm sorry if the, there we are. It's a little bit better, isn't it? Uh, this is a quote from a guy called Jaroslav Pelikan, and he is, uh, he's a Yale professor. He said this, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of the Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Not much. Actually, not much. I'm not going to touch on everything because there's a lot, but on some key themes. But looking back, there's a, there's a person who was called Julian, and he had a great sub-name. Sub he was from the third century. Thanks, uh, Mike. Julian the Apostate. What a name. It's not a great name. But Julian the Apostate um, uh, was a Roman emperor from 361 to 363 and one of the most gifted ancient adversaries to Christianity, if that's a strange way of describing him, gifted adversary. But in his work against Christianity, he said this, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame. I like this. Unless anyone thinks it's a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs in the villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. Anyway, he goes on at the end of his life. He, he, he recognizes at the end of his reign. But at the end, he was forced to say, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. And how about this, uh, this gentleman called Ernest Renan? He's a French historian and religious scholar and a linguist. He makes this wonderful broad statement. All history is incomprehensible without Christ. We, Phil mentioned it on our carol service. You know, our dates, our birthdays are even you know, named in relation to his birth. But it's so, so much more. I read uh, on sabbatical a series of books by a lady called Anne Rice. I don't know if anyone's a fan. I'm not doing well with spotting the kind of the trends in our congregation. Um, I'm really not, am I? Uh, has anyone heard of the Vampire Chronicles? Interview with a vampire? Maybe that film. A few nods. Not going to commit it. Does anyone like Jesus here? Let's see if we go. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Interview with a Vampire might be on at Christmas, I don't know. She, she wrote these books. She sold millions and millions of books. But uh, she grew up as a Catholic and kind of went away in her teenage years. She spent 40 years or so uh, married to an atheist, just not even considering uh, anything to do with Jesus. She had rejected all that nonsense, as she said. And she's written dozens of books about vampires and gothic horror. I don't recommend you read them. But... She recognized, I read her, um, like a, an autobiography, and she said she started off kind of like in, in um, Victorian periods, and she just noticed that the history of these vampire stories she was writing were getting older and older and older, as in they were going back in time. So the Victorian, then she went back, and it got to the kind of um, 
16th century, and then she went to the medieval stuff, and, and she was just writing about vampires. Not real, by the way. But she, she decided, in, she kind of finished this character plot with someone, she decided she wanted to go back and write kind of this sort of setting, the genre, in the Roman period. Vampires in the Roman you know, Empire. And she said, as she started to research about Roman culture, references to Jesus kept popping up. And she was like, what? That as she read kind of uh, historians and uh, the, you know, the, the, the kind of um, references and the histories of the Roman Empire, again and again, the impact of Christians and the person of Jesus kept making reference. She was like, I, what, why? And she suddenly started to think, this person, Jesus, really made a difference. That he wasn't just sort of made up and had just become part of culture. That he was affecting and making uh, changes in local society and nationally, internationally for the Roman Empire. And the people of Jesus were kind of confounding the rulers and the ways of the empire. And it started to make you think, this Jesus really made a difference. And it so set her back on a journey to think about Jesus. And she, she kind of made a profession of faith and turned back to the Lord, which is brilliant. She gave up writing vampire stories. She wrote some fictional ones about Jesus. So what is so significant about Jesus' birth and life and death? And I'm sure you can give kind of lots of answers to that for me. But I've got eight. They're quite short. Look of horror on Jenny's face then, thinking, oh my goodness, eight things to go through. What's the difference? If Jesus wasn't born, what's the difference? These aren't given, by the way. We live in the legacy, the history, the impact of Jesus. So at eight, you could do like a countdown of that, you know, the pot pickers at eight. Anyone remember that? Good. Uh, the hit parade, Phil, yeah. <laughs> anyway, because Jesus was born, we connect religion and being a good person. Now that may, we're, not, we're kind of anti the word religion. We like to use faith. But actually, Jesus coming connects religion and being a good person. You see, if you think going to church and praying and reading the Bible and singing songs is kind of what we do as religion, we have to ask the question, should that make you a better person? Does making the Bible, reading the Bible and praying and coming to a religious service, should that make you a better person? This is where we get a little bit interactive. You can think about it and maybe not. I guess ultimately, we'd say yes. Should someone who says they go to church and worship God, should they be someone that is characterized as a truth teller? Someone who, if they were in marriage, should keep their marital vows? Or someone who should be generous to the poor? What would you think? Yeah. What would happen if that same person who says they come along and they do all the right things in the religious gathering lies or cheats? We'd say Hypocrites, skin-deep faith. 
But that wasn't always the case. You see, at the time of Jesus, when Jesus was born, in the time of Rome, in the time of Herod, in the time that we now class as 20 centuries ago, the Greeks and the Romans, who were the prevailing religion at the time across the world, had no problem with going to worship in the temples and give their devotion and sacrifice to the variety of gods. And they had no problem with poverty or starvation or homelessness. No, Roman religion, you've probably seen it on the movies if they've been repeated this year, had no problem with gladiators. They had no problem with crucifixions and torture. They had no problem with the exposure of unwanted infants, letting them die on the hillside. They had no problem with adultery. That Roman religion in Jesus' time had no connection between being a pious Roman citizen who offered sacrifices to gods and then being a good person. There's a disconnect. Religion and morality, well, they were separate things. But it was Jesus, following the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus who came, prophesied long ago in the ancient days, writes the Hebrews uh, writer, but now has come God amongst us. That Jesus taught us again and again and his impact and the ripples of what he taught have so transformed that all of us would say, of course, if you come and worship God, it will make a difference to who you are. Of course it should. You see, Jesus, Jesus taught us that we can't say we love God and not love our neighbor. They're part and parcel, two sides of the same coin of the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, come and do the religious devotion. But you cannot divorce it from loving your neighbor as yourself. That is radical. You see, Jesus put his finger on religious hypocrisy. If you're involved in religion, if you're involved in devotion, it must change you. And so by implication, if Jesus hadn't been born, people would continue to practice religion and not know that religion was there to transform you through the grace of God into a better person. I love it how, just as a small illustration, one ancient text instructed bishops who were overseeing congregations in cities not to interrupt worship when a wealthy person came in but to encourage them to sit on the floor to welcome the poor. At seven, because Jesus was born, we believe education is vital. That is the impact of the fact that Jesus came of that encouragement to learn of the wisdom of God, to know that the world is ordered and structured and made with plan and purpose and design. And that wanting to know more about God's good ways. That a love of learning led to, to monasteries, among other things, which became the kind of cradle of academic guilds. Those austere universities that are sort of still recommended as the places that we should aspire to go, Cambridge and Oxford, all began as Jesus-inspired efforts to love God with all one's mind. 
It isn't that we check the mind in when we become a Christian. Far from it, we engage the mind far more. Christians I, I love in my old church in Leicester. Uh, when I first went in 1999, we had an anniversary. It was the hundred and no, the 202nd anniversary of Sunday school. I didn't know junior church, as we now call it, Sunday school was that old. But it was. It was one of those, it was one of those churches involved as a nonconformist church. Part of the history of, of people loving Jesus was to say, actually, it isn't right that the privileged just get educated, but all. And they established Sunday school because kids were working. And they said, that actually, every child has a right to read and write and learn. Now, it's good the children have gone out because they'll probably disagree. <laughs> now, we don't want to learn. We want to work. We want money, not education. And uh, one of our people who likes history had gone back in the records. It was, an incident, you know, there was, it was before clean water, and they had a Sunday school outing, and they had hundreds of kids. And it said they had, um, I don't know, 20 gallons of beer and 25 gallons of ale for the junior church anniversary. <laughs> kind of shocked them. It was before temperance, even. It's because it was clean and healthy. I won't make an application point there. But it was from this core conviction that it's right that people learn and are empowered. One of the traits of, of, of the missionary movement, the modern missionary movement, and even way back into the orders of Benedictine and Ignatian monks and all that, was that our mind is God-given. Let's use it. At six, because Jesus was born, women and girls were valued. Now you may kind of be thinking, huh? But it's true. Let me ask you this question. Do you think women and girls are as valuable as men and boys? Why? Made in the image of God. Exactly right. But where do we get that idea? Well, from the scriptures, but actually far more from Jesus. You see, knowingly or unknowingly, we get that idea from Jesus himself, the very image, the very representation of God. Jesus and his early followers were massively radical. And most people don't recognize the impact of Jesus in this regard, in his valuing of women and girls. You see, again, when Jesus was born, Rome was in power. And part of their culture insisted that women were virgins when they married and remain kind of faithful to one man through the whole of the marriage. But the double standard was that men were free to exercise sexual licenses however they wished. Furthermore, it was Jesus who taught that women and men were to be sexually abstinent before marriage and then faithful to marital vows within marriage. No double standards. It was the influence of Jesus who raised the value of women that the marital age of those who would get married was changed by the followers of Jesus. I don't know if you knew this. 
In the Roman world, as in many parts of the world today, girls would be married off at, say, 11 or 12. But the impact of Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the early church was that girls were valuable. More, they are more than just childbearers or wives. They have rightly dignity and value innately. And the evidence of history demonstrates that the early church didn't marry girls before 18 and frequently into their 20s. The impact of Jesus. Again, Roman society had virtually no place for uh, girls and women. But because of Jesus and the example of the early church, women were raised up. I've said no equal. In the eyes of God. Those wonderful phrases Paul writes. There is neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Greek. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And the evidences are there to see in scripture. Female apostles, evangelists, deacons of the church, prophets, preachers. One commentator wrote about the statement about there is neither male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, all one in Christ Jesus, said that that is the first statement in human literature of egalitarianism. That's a big word for the 28th of December. It means that to see we're equal. First in all of ancient literature. Wow, Jesus. At five, because Jesus was born, infants are protected. Why is it that we believe that every child is entitled to the right to live and the right to life? Why? Whether they're a baby girl or a baby boy, do you agree? Where does that idea come from? Well, again, in the world in which Jesus was born, the Romans had this really low view of infant life. Often they didn't name children until they were two because they might die. But more than that, they were particularly harsh to baby girls. They loved boys, kind of needed a few girls to have babies later on. But you didn't really want many of them. They're an imposition, a burden, a waste of space. And as such, many of those infant girls were often left out in the cold on the hills to be eaten by wild animals or die. It sounds horrific to us. That's what was happening. There was an archaeological dig a few years ago in a Greek cemetery. And as they did their their assessments on the graves and who was buried there, they found that in very few Greek families was there more than one daughter. Why? Because the others had been left out to die of exposure. It was Jesus who taught the equal value of life. It was Jesus who teaches us the value of every human being and the preciousness of life because God became a baby. Think about it. The word became flesh, not as a grown-up man. As a newborn, as an infant. And he grew up to teach the dignity of every life. 
And as such, the early church, living in that inspiration, living in that knowledge, knew to protect and cherish the vulnerable, whether that's in the womb or out of the womb. They got that from Jesus. That Jesus' treatment of and teachings about children led to the forbidding of such practices of of casting aside infants, but also led to the the establishment of godparents. Who's a godparent here? I'm getting some response now. Hooray! I'm a godparent. I love the fact that I'm a godparent to two. I'm seeing one of them later. uh, But the the original view of godparents was that as Christians were persecuted... By, by particularly the Romans, as sometimes the parents would be killed and, and the children left abandoned. And so Christians kind of got together and said, if we are killed for our faith, if we are taken out, we want to appoint other Christians that we love and who will be there for our children because they matter. That's where godparents originated from. They're not just to buy nice presents at Christmas. That the early followers of Jesus pioneered orphanages, children's homes. Because children matter. A Norwegian scholar wrote a study of this impact and it was entitled, When Children Became People, The Birth of Early Childhood in Christianity. Wow, what difference Jesus makes. At four, because Jesus was born, the sick are cared for. In many cultures, and still perhaps we might say reflects ours, when someone gets sick or someone is old, should they be cared for? Yeah? Some of the older folk are kind of a bit, you know, where are we going with this? Should a sick person be nursed back to health? Yeah. Should an elderly person be looked after even if they're no longer productive and can't work? Yeah. It goes against the grain. Not from that settled conviction, but you hear the challenges to that going on. If you study history or understand other cultures, that's not how it goes. Why do you think the sick and the elderly deserve care and provision? Because they matter. Because of Jesus. Because of his teaching and his example. Because as the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, the glory of God, the exact representation, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a human being. Who did he associate with most? The poor and the sick and the hurting. And he taught his followers to care about the marginalized and the sick. Go and heal the sick. You see, at the time of Jesus, there was no tradition of nursing people back to health. The Romans escaped from their cities in times of plague. And you know what? The Christians moved in to care for those who were suffering. And the Romans thought it was nonsense until they began to see how much love meant. That lovely, powerful, wonderful passage in in Matthew 25 of how the church got it and understood 
what Jesus was teaching. He said, um, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger or invite you in and needing clothes and clothe you? When did you see, when did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That is countercultural, radical change. 2,000 years ago, it shows the very heart of God. The compassion characterizes the follower of Jesus. The Jesus' universal concern for those who suffered transcended and broke the ancient rules. And I'm so thankful that the legacy of that is again and again, Christians have responded to Jesus of pioneering care for those with leprosy. Though most of our hospitals are based upon Christian Christian followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus who said we must care for the sick. In the Council of Nyssa, it decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, a great big edifice of worship, there should be a hospice, a place of caring for the sick and poor next door. Wow. At three, because Jesus was born, we're taught to forgive those who hurt us. Do you think it's better to forgive or hold a grudge? Would you prefer to live in a world where people make peace and try to, rec- to be reconciled or to live in a world of blood vengeance and honor killings? First one. Do we want to live by an eye for an eye or worse, an eye for an insult or a life for a slap? A vendetta's of blood scores. It's better to forgive. But where do we get that idea? Really, where do we get it? Well, we get it from Jesus. Right in the Lord's Prayer, Father, our Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That Jesus links together the forgiveness of God for us and our willingness to forgive other people. Jesus taught us more than that. He taught us to rise above the insults, to let go of the hurts, to forgive everyone for everything, to make peace. Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Radically forgive your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How radical is that? At two, because Jesus was born, we know what God is like. How do we know that the God we worship is love? 
How do we know? Because he was born amongst us. How do we know that God is kind? How do we know that God values those with disabilities as much as those with able bodies? Does God value the failures and the successful? What about those who've blown it? How do you think about God? What is God like? How do you know? Where's that come from? You see, it's not intuitively obvious. If you think that God forgives you when you ask him, where does that idea come from? You see, many people, many people who reflect on religion think that religion is just like a group of blind people searching around in a dark room, searching and grasping and, and kind of reaching out and God's sort of playing hide and seek and, and religious people are just trying to explain the unexplainable. But Christmas is that God comes amongst us, that he took on human flesh, that he was incarnate of Jesus of Nazareth, that the guessing at what God is like has entirely gone. God stepped into the world. Wow. Does God care for children? Well, how do we know? Well, let's look at Jesus. Did Jesus care for children? Does Jesus care for the sick? Does Jesus care for the dying? Does Jesus care for women? Does Jesus care for men? How does Jesus treat people who've made a mess of their lives? With grace and compassion. How does Jesus treat those who knew better and they, they deliberately chose to sin and they said stupid things and they hurt people? They've made a mess of everything. He forgave them and he welcomed them. How do we know what God is like? Because we see it lived out in Jesus. Because God entered this world as a child, as a baby. Not only do we see what God is like, but we know that God knows what it's like for us. He understands what it's like to be human. God knows what it feels like to be little. God knows what it feels like to be cold. Don't you read a blog this week from a, an Iranian pastor in prison with no glass in his window and no blankets. And all the other prisoners refused to help him. And he said, it is cold. And he reflected in his blog, his journal entry. In the suffering he was experiencing, he saw that God understands. In that dirty, cold, marginalized birthplace. The God knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back by someone you trust. The God knows what it means to have your body hurting. The God knows what it's like to grieve for the loss of a loved one. God knows what it's like to be poor and desperate and not knowing where the next mouthful will come from. God knows what it's like to have the stomach rumbling. God knows what it's like to be tempted. 
Because God is exactly like Jesus. And God knows how exactly how it feels. And at one. Because Jesus was born, people's lives are changed today. This isn't just a historic lesson about Rome and what Jesus did. He changes lives. Hooray! All around us, here, gathered today, dozens of us, he changes our lives. Sometimes in the most dramatic ways, always. He changes lives for the better. Jesus changed my life. 19-year-old, kind of knew how the world worked, thought I'd got it all sorted. And he challenged me about how do I explain an empty tomb? And as I got stuck on that, that stumbling block, what happened in the resurrection? And I came to that point of thinking, yeah, he, he must have praised, even though I didn't want to believe there's no other way of explaining it. He surprised me wonderfully because he changed my heart and my mind about so many things. And I am who I am now, in large part, to him. Not that I'm perfect yet, a long way to go. But I'm saying, Jesus, you change me. I think it's Jim Carrey who said he wished everyone would become a multimillionaire and realize that possessions don't lead to the meaning of life. See, so many people in this world go around with an emptiness but seeking and grasping and trying and hoping it's going to be in this, in this relationship, in this substance, in this job, in this career, in this status, in this fame. Of finding, where do I fit in? Where will I not feel so alone? Where does it all seem to make sense? Come to Jesus. Again and again, the story of followers of Jesus say, yeah, the hole that yearning is filled. That there is more to life than acquiring more stuff. How stuffed full are your mantelpieces and shelves with the Christmas gifts? It's one of the things, the rites of passage that every teenager goes through and thinks, Christmas isn't what it used to be, is it? It used to be really exciting and now I've got socks. <laughs> but it's not found in things. It's found in Jesus How many people have spent the weeks running up to Christmas shopping and thought, oh, Boxing Day, the sales are on, more shopping. No. Too many people thinking we're random bits of atoms and clusters of proteins. Thinking, what's the point? Do I matter? Jesus says, of course you do. I came to live and die for you. Whether people are torn up inside by addictions and anger and grief and relational breakdowns or family issues, again and again we see Jesus changes lives. That's why Christmas matters. That's why if we played spot the difference with Jesus and took Jesus out of the picture, my goodness, it would be different. Horrifically different. But I thank God that he came amongst us. The word made flesh. This is Jesus, not just the person of history, though he was historical. 
but the person who is alive now and exerts his presence and his effect right now in people's lives. Some good reasons to think about. Should we respond? Let's stand together. I've preempted New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve is one of those times, I remember last year I sat with some friends and they said, what's your New Year's resolution? <laughs> and it wasn't to be superficial. I've touched on eight key areas of why Jesus. But as, as we worship just now, what is it of 2014 that just needs to be forgiven and let go? What is it of 2014 you've been longing for and found that if you haven't been focusing on Jesus, it's, it's empty. It's shifting sands. What is it you're really thankful about for 2014 can build on for 2015? And maybe, maybe just maybe something if you're visiting or considering Jesus, does that actually he, he makes the difference. My life without him doesn't make sense. You can begin a new life now. Or you can make that resolution, I'm going to find out about this man, Jesus. That our world is different, transformed in so many ways. And I want you to ask the question, maybe they're not all going to come to you right now. But in 2015, brother and sister in Christ, how are you going to bring the glory of Jesus by making a difference in the world you inhabit? In the people you meet, in the places you go, and the opportunity he gives. That the kingdom should come. Thank you.